Kieran Lahr was trained to be a teacher and then taught reception age children on the Isle of Wight. In 2011, he won the Times Chicken House competition and The Freaks was published by Chicken House in 2012. Since then, he's achieved success with an epic animal fantasy series set in the five realms. The first three books told the story of Podkin One Ear and the second three books are about the quest undertaken by Uki. Kieran joins me in the reading corner to explain the appeal of rabbit characters and tell us more about the creation of his expanding fantasy landscape. Welcome, Kieran. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Before we begin, is there anyone who's not yet discovered the five realms? But let's assume that there may be somebody. And I thought we could start there. Now, I know that map making, because you've talked about this before, was a formative part of your story building process. Maybe you can start by telling us about the five realms and the differences between the story of Podkin and where that's set and the story of Uki and where that's set. Yeah, so, I mean, when I um, decided to write my own fantasy series, I remembered um, hearing about uh, uh, J.R. Tolkien, who's my my hero, um, saying that when he wrote The Hobbit, the first thing he did was he sat down and drew a map. So I thought, well, that's a good a good place to start. So um, yeah, I sat down and, and I drew a map, and I wanted it to have various different different countries, which were the, became the five realms. And I named them all, and then all after breeds of rabbit. And then I set my story, my original story about Pocket in one of the realms, and that kind of story unfolded over three books. Uh, and then it got to the end of the trilogy, and my publishers asked for for some more books, and I realised that I'd set um, all of those books just in one of the realms, and that the series was called The Five Realms, so I thought, oh, i better explore some of the others, and that gave me the idea to kind of uh, maybe have a different set of characters in a different part of the world, and to make um, the separate parts, the separate realms very different, very unique. It's a good way of kind of varying the story as you're, as you're reading it as well. So... Tell me a little bit about the, I'm interested in the process of map making. And you've said that you were able to almost design settings and lands that were very different. As you were doing it, were stories emerging in your head? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great thing to do. It's a great way to start off uh, if you're writing a fantasy story to get your brain going, get the ideas flowing. For example, um, while I was doing the map, I just thought, oh, it's kind of based on like kind of Bronze Age Europe. Uh, they had big forests. So I better put a big forest in the middle. And I just just kind of whacked one in. But then that became quite central to the story. And in fact, the third book just takes place completely in this forest, which wouldn't have been there if I hadn't have drawn the map first. So it's very interesting, the kind of the routes it takes you down. And mm. I'm also interested to hear that you had a sort of reference point in your head, which was Bronze Age. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of these fantasy stories none of them seem to come forward from the medieval period. They sort of go back further in time. Why do you think that is? I think because that's unrecorded history, isn't it? So no one knows what happened. So it's it's very open for you to kind of think of different legends and, and create an imagination what the place would have been like, whereas medieval is, is has been even roughly recorded, hasn't it? Yeah, and just just the kind of potential there with all the gods and the goddesses and 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 battles and wars and things, and also you get to see you see traces of it in the landscape, don't you? Like the, the burial mounds and things like that, which 
I often find myself staring at and wondering what life was like then, you know. So what about this landscape where Uki takes place? Describe that to us. So I wanted it to be quite uh, different from from the, the the realms where Popkin was. Um, so it's 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 more of an advanced kingdom. So well, the first book takes place in the north, which is still quite quite primitive. It still um, has tribes and things there, and then it comes down into the, the second book is in the swamps, and that that was kind of inspired by the feuding clans they they get in the in the mountains in in America, the hillbilly clans, you know, the clampets and that. And then this book, the Ghost Burrow is set in the kind of the capital of this this empire and in the rabbit world no one could have iron because iron's been possessed by this evil god but this particular um city has a, a meteor landed and, and the city spread around the meteor and they were able to use the iron to make steel so they've advanced quite a bit beyond the rest of the five realms so they they are quite it's like a medieval setting you know a big a big city made of stone with lots of um soldiers and guards and things so that was the inspiration for that so this is Eisenfell, yes. Which you've got a map of that at the beginning of this have, book yes. as well. So apart from map making, do you have other reference points that you use? Do you use photographs as well, or is the rest of it entirely generated by your imagination? It's kind of a mixture. So for the, I mean, the pocket books, there's lots of uh, natural settings um like forests and downs and things like that so that uh, comes a lot from uh where i live on the isle of Wight. i'm very lucky because there's lots of different kind of environments all around me like you've got beach and downs and, and ancient woodland and things like that and i often see something and i'll just i'll take a snap of it or just you know remember it to put into the story and this one the medieval one um yeah i love walking around old cities and and, and spotting little doorways and things like that so yeah i often take a i'm quite visual when i write i like to have a an image in my head so I often take some snaps with my phone and, and like pop them on my, my computer while I'm writing so I can kind of draw some inspiration from that. I wanted to talk about scale as well. Um, you've described your uh, stories as epic, and they are. And you've also mentioned already Tolkien in, in our conversation. And I know previously you've talked about George R. R. Martin, both epic uh, writers, it might seem quite a daunting thing to set out to write an epic. And I wondered what you had to bear in mind in doing something on such a large scale and at the same time keeping it relatable for your readers. It's kind of a, a strange mix of planning and kind of intuition as you're going along. So I, at the start, I penciled out very roughly uh, a plan of, of where the story was going to go. And then as I'm going along, uh, I just have I have lots of notebooks and I just kind of add things in, add ideas in and I separate them. So I've got a page, like a section for each book with all just rough ideas. And then when I get to write that book, I go through the ideas and, and manage to draw up the plans. But there's a lot. It's very <laughs> the more books you have in the series, the more complicated it is, because obviously you have to reference things that have happened in the past and also think a bit about what's going to happen in the future and where the story is going to go. So you're thinking of that at the same time as, yeah, definitely, I, I want each book to be um, very unique and have its own feel. So it's kind of like, it's like spinning plates, really. It's just <laughs> trying mm. to make sure you've got all those elements in together. Yeah, it's interesting because I think people might not realise, because you've written the books, people always assume that you know your own books really, really well, which, of course, you do at the point that you're writing them. But six books on, you're in a different world. So that idea of having... Um, these kind of 
planners, if you like, must be really important to keep that consistency. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And often like when I'm sort of writing one book, I'll have an idea for maybe the next one or two books ahead. So I make sure I write that down. So when I, you know, come to actually write that book, I can see what I'm referring to. And I like to have like, you know, sort of little Easter eggs that appear in here and there and little references back to the start. Yeah, the further away you get from the first book, the harder it is. I've got like a book which I call my Bible. And that whenever I kind of have something that becomes canon that goes in there so I've got like a reference point of everything that's part of the world uh, and that's kind of slowly growing over time but that's got all the all the maps and all the different there's quite a lot in there that hasn't even made into the books yet but things like different foods and dialects and things like that yeah I love it I can feel a compendium coming on that'd be great one day yeah I'll just have yeah. to, <laughs> we're done already I just have to hand it in and, and print it but yeah it's quite daunting to have like an entire world like that to build, but it's it's something really nice to be able to do and you know have complete freedom in writing a historical book, which is my first book was historical and involved like a lot of research and you have to research everything. With fantasy, you can just make it all up yourself. You can make it up, but it's still got to be believable. And so um, you know, I refer back sometimes to an article that Peter Dickinson wrote where he said, you know, it's fantasy, but it really has to be for it to be good fantasy it's got to be rooted in reality because that is what at the end of the day makes it relatable is where it's rooted in some kind of reality is that how you see it yeah definitely yeah I think it's the small things that make it believable things like little expressions that the people would say um and you know their religions and 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 things they eat because especially dealing with rabbits uh, puts a different slant on it and so you have to kind of yeah what would they eat and, and how would they get their food and things like that um I think if you've gone into the, that kind of obsessive level of detail that I have it kind of it makes it more relatable you've got to build a, it's got to be convincing hasn't it so it's got to kind of mirror the real exactly. world exactly so let's talk about uh rabbits briefly so unlike the sort of mythology of something like Tolkien you've gone for rabbits. We know that there have been other rabbit stories before. What is it about rabbits that appear to be so humble and yet they're just perfect for this series? What do you think it is about rabbits in particular? I think, well, everyone likes rabbits, don't they? Well, children love rabbits for a start, but also there's that kind of, for me, is that there's that mystery. When I was growing up, I grew up in the countryside and I used to walk past the big warrens with all the tunnels in, I always used to wonder what's going on inside there, you know, and that's that kind of element of, of mystery, I think. And they're also, they can be cute, but my gosh, they can be fierce as well. If you've ever tried picking one. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We used to have one that was um, a very feisty female rabbit. You had to, <laughs> every time you had to feed her, you had to have one bowl as a shield to kind of ward her off. She'd charge at you and try and attack you. Yeah. So they're, yeah, not always soft and fluffy. And the most expressive ears ever because <laughs> yeah. they lay them flat they stick them up <laughs> it's great for writing actually because you're always trying to kind of they say show don't tell don't they so kind of show how how characters are feeling so with the ears you've got an extra level of that because you can show emotion whether they have them tight back to the head when they're scared or if they're twitching so you can bring that into it as well it has to be said that some of the events in your stories are quite terrifying you know the idea of rabbits having their ears taken and then you know put on the as trophies on on a cape or whatever we can somehow get away with that because they're animals in a way that you couldn't if you're writing about humans for this age group 
and also I think that the the fact that it's a story being told it gives it like an extra layer of detachment so the children even if they are scared they know that actually this is a story being told by some of the survivors so they know in the end it's going to be okay and you can also if things do get a bit scary you can use the the bar to kind of step in and, and have a little scene with the bar to just kind of diffuse it a little bit as well yeah that's clever that's one of the things that I was going to talk to you about actually but let's talk about Uki now um, and in particular um, we're going to talk about the book that will be out very shortly Uki and the Ghost Barrow which we've said is the third book in this trilogy can you tell us a little bit about where we left Uki at the end of the last book in Uki and the Swamp Spirit he had just gone into the marshes, into the fens, um, where one of the spirits he was after pursuing had made its home. And he had just defeated this evil swamp spirit called Cheris. And when he defeats the spirits, he kind of, he, he captures them in a crystal and then some of their power goes into him. So he captured Cheris and he kind of absorbs some of her power of, of healing. And then there's one final spirit left of the the four that escaped that he's been chasing, and he knows it's to the south in the in this city of Eisenfell. So at the end of the last book, they're just kind of leaving the fens to head off on the last part of their quest. And the story is told. Well, let's talk a little bit about the two sets of characters. So we've got the bard um, who's travelling with Rue, his apprentice who's been poisoned, and Jory. And they're making their way into a territory that they know is going to be hostile, but they need to go there because they need ingredients that are going to make Rue well again. And there they encounter two other rabbits, which we need to know about. So, yeah, they've got into, um, there's a range of mountains uh, and there's a really fierce tribe called the Arax that live in, in these mountains who, um, yeah, they don't take very kindly to people coming onto their land. It'd be really good to hear a reading at this point, I think. Where yeah. Whereabouts in the story does this come? So this is Uki and his friends. They've just reached the outskirts of the city, uh, Eisenfell, and they know that the, the spirit they're after is inside. But the spirit has kind of, it's taken over the, the emperor of Eisenfell and it kind of corrupted all his, his army and turned them into these... Uh, creatures called the Deathless, who have like um, these just blank steel faceplates. And they're trying to sneak into the city to get to this spirit. And they've come to the docks, which is the only way in. And they, uh, just as they get there, they are kind of caught by these enemy soldiers. Here we go. So before anyone could even move, the Deathless began to charge towards them, armour clanking, blank steel faceplates gleaming. Then the old she-rabbit was amongst them, waving her staff and wailing, tangling them up for an instant. Uki sparked into action. The powers given to him by Ifrit kicked in, and he felt time slow to a crawl. The guards were barreling forwards, knocking the old rabbit aside, coming straight towards him. But their movements were sticky, slow as snails. He could see the specks of dust puff up as their feet struck the dry mud of the yard. He watched the old rabbit's staff begin an end-over-end topple as it flew from her paw. The slowness didn't affect him, though. His fingers snapped towards the last two short spears in his harness, but he realised he didn't want to waste one if he could help it. Instead, his eye caught on a wooden mallet lying on the workshop floor. In a blink, he had snatched it up, then flung it at the approaching rabbits. 
Uki watched it spiral, gracefully, deadly, until it connected with the lead guard's blank silver faceplate. The metal bent in with an echoing clang, sending the rabbit toppling backwards into his squad, knocking them all to the floor in a scrambling heap. And then Jory slammed the workshop doors shut, cutting off the scene from sight. We have to find another way out, she shouted, as Uki's sense of time popped back to normal. They all began to dash around the darkened hut, searching for another door or window. Here, Uki heard Cree yell, there's a hole under this door at the front, and a path out, but it goes into the river. They all ran to the end of the workshop, where two big double doors stood. A gap at the bottom exposed a slope full of lapping river water. A slipway, said Jory, for Locke to launch his boats. Blistering beetroot, said Cole. I'm not great at swimming. In fact, I think sinking is all I'm good for. He raised the heavy hammer that had replaced his right arm. We'll only have to wade, said Jory. We can go out this way and climb up the bank. Hurry, said Uki. He could hear the deathless beginning to batter at the other entrance. Mm. I'm really interested in the way that you sort of chose to tell this story using a bard to, and and you, so you've got two stories going on in effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that came about. It was when I, when I decided I knew I wanted to write my own fantasy story. So I was working as a reception teacher and I was just really interested in stories uh, and the way that they um, we use them, you know, to kind of pass on experiences and, and kind of deal with emotions and things like that. And also the way that legends kind of emerge around tiny kind of elements of fact that might be completely different from the what actually comes out in the legend. So I knew that I, I wanted to have my a character as a storyteller telling the story. And I, I wrote the scene. The first thing I wrote was when the bard came to the warren to tell the story. And at that point, I didn't even know what story he was going to tell. And then the story, it really kind of explores how legends are different, but also you know, the way that stories are so important to us and how they, they can uh, give us experiences and, you know, expand, expand our imaginations and make us feel things and, and make us realise that we're not alone, really. And in a way, your storyteller has some of the qualities of Scheherazade. He's sort of telling a story to save his own life in this book. Yes, yeah. Um, it's really interesting because the first, the first story was just the bard sitting in a warren telling a tale. And I kind of envisioned that would be the whole thing he'd be sitting there over a period of nights just like Sherazade telling the tale but then my editor said no we need to have uh, more about him as well and his kind of the bard story developed into like a separate narrative going on so we've got mm. a story in the present day and one in the past and of course more exciting things started ha- to happen to him and he got in uh, he gets in scrapes and he you know, often has his life threatened and he uses stories as a way to escape danger and, and entertain you know so mm. yeah it's become two threads going through now and um some quite scary things happen to the bard as well mm. interesting to hear how that developed because i actually found his story really compelling yeah i identify a lot with the bard obviously you know he's, he's kind of based on my experience as a teacher yeah and i've got to kind of now manage the the two tales and i've got to bring them out and bring them together at the end so it's <laughs> another plate to spin as well Talking about stories within stories, you've got these two trilogies now. Is there something about a trilogy that lends itself really well to this kind of storytelling? And do you think about it as you know a series of three books? Yeah, so it's it's kind of like a it's like a beginning and a middle and an end, isn't it? I think that's why it lends itself to th- to threes. And also, um, there's going to be three trilogies. So there's um, 
there's something about the number three, isn't there? Definitely. I think it, it, it crops up. And even in stories as well, you have, you know, like the three bears and, and, and the rule of three. It's definitely something that's, I don't know if it's kind of quite pleasing to us as a, you know, subconsciously, but it definitely is very powerful, I think. That's, that's Let's talk true. about some of the sort of themes that run through uh, the books. This set, the Uki set, is really based around uh, a character who's an outcast. And that's quite an interesting idea in literature too, isn't it? To be sort of set outside your community. Yes, definitely. So yeah, he's an outcast and so are his uh, all his friends that uh, make up his little group. So really, when, in the first three, Podkin, he's actually... He's the son of a prince, so he's quite privileged and, and he starts off at the beginning where he's quite entitled. So I wanted to go to kind of the other end of this spectrum and have someone, you know, from the poorest, most difficult aspect of uh, area of, of society. Uh, but also I think children can really identify with that because small children at some point in their lives, they always feel like they're outside of something, whether it's a, a friendship group or they're not, they feel they're not being good at a certain sport or something like that. So they, they can identify with that feeling of being, you know, on the outside. It's interesting you should say that because one of the things that I picked up probably towards the end of the book, and I think it's Jory, but co- correct me if I'm wrong, she's sort of reflecting on what small creatures, small people can achieve and that they're often underestimated by adults. They're often more capable. And as I was reading that, because I knew about your background as a reception teacher, I felt there was a little bit of the reception teacher there who knows that young children are much more capable than we often think oh definitely i mean they're amazing you know in themselves i mean their first usually their first reaction to something new is say oh i can't do it so you know as you're a teacher you have to really address that and change the mindset and just having a higher expectation than saying you can do it and you're going to be amazing and you know they soon start believing in themselves and they do it they can achieve incredible things it's very easy for people to say, oh, they're just little children. We're just going to let them do this and, and they're not gonna, we're not going to challenge them or we're not going to, but, you know, bring the challenge on and they they rise to it every time. So, And of course, that is a satisfying theme in fantasy writing. It's the smallest, you know, the hobbit, not the wizard, not the the warrior. It's the hobbit that is the one that Definitely, yeah. Gets us I mean, through. <laughs> yeah, it's quite tempting, isn't it, when you're writing fantasy to have like massive, incredible magic powers and huge dragons flying everywhere. But in actual fact, you know, the, the, the person we identify with is the smallest, most insignificant, because that's how a lot of us see ourselves, isn't it? But that you can achieve amazing things if you try. Yeah. Now, we're not going to probably learn much more about the stories that are coming up for the five realms. But as I look back at your map, I can see that there are still areas that have not been written about. There must be some more stories here. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to go back and, and, and Pocking's story isn't finished either. So um, I need to go back and, and bring the whole thing to kind of a, a conclusion. And there's still some threads there of things that need to be resolved in what's happening with the bar and things like that. So I'm going to hopefully kind of bring all my massive <laughs> rug of wefts all together into a, a conclusion at the end. Yeah. And explore there's still two realms at the, in the south there that I haven't even been to, so <laughs> we need to go to those as well. And Rue, is he going to come through as a storyteller? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, it, this kind of whole thing is, is his experience of learning how to tell stories of his own and, and build up the confidence to do that. So, yes, yeah. 
brilliant. Kieran, thank you so much for taking time out of the five realms today to visit the realm of the reading corner. Uh, It's been such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. It's been lovely. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.